If you think back to uh, what Jesus said about knowing a tree by its fruit, about knowing uh, who a person is, about their character by what they live out, right? you will never escape what you believe uh, by, the way that you, by the way that you act. We will always know, ultimately, over time, what you really believe by the way you live, the way you act. Okay, You can profess, I can profess, all day long till I am blue in the face over what I believe. And then over time, my life will show whether I hold to that or whether I'm a hypocrite. Okay, We all have something of a gap. The guy called it a hypocrisy gap. We all have something of a gap uh, between what we believe and what we actually live. And the idea is that hopefully over time, as we grow maturity and holiness and godliness, that gap gets shorter and, and smaller. Okay, and that our lives actually line up with what we profess. But there is, in, in Titus, a strong connection between what you believe and how you live, between sound doctrine and sound living. Or you might have heard the terms orthodoxy and orthopraxy, between right belief and right living. Okay, so that, uh, we looked at that last week. We're going to look at some more uh, today, specifically at leadership within the church. And this is something that I get kind of excited about because I've spent some time uh, thinking over this, I've been in some churches that had a had great leadership, uh, healthy uh, group of elders of men who were leading that church and overseeing it and shepherding that church, um, and and there was life. Okay, it wasn't a perfect place, but there was life. The word was taught, uh, people were growing, and then I have been in places that did that uh, had not so healthy leadership, and there was a stark difference uh, between the life. Uh, of those different bodies, okay? Leadership, specifically what we're looking at today with elders, uh, there is a strong, strong need for men who are sound in their doctrine and who have the ability to articulate that doctrine, to teach Scripture, to exhort people to Scripture, to exhort people to good works, to actions, as Titus says, that will adorn the gospel of God. All right? It is a necessary thing uh, to have those men in place who will lead this body. Um, so we're going to look at uh, what Titus has, or what Paul has to say to Titus uh, about that today. And this idea, too, that a church really isn't established until you get its leadership settled. Okay, You may have a place, but until you've got good, solid leadership in place, uh, there are still things that remain uh, to be put into order. And that's, how, that's where we're going to pick up today, verse 5. But before I do that, I want to pray. Uh, before we dive in. So if you would pray with me. Father, it is a uh, sober responsibility to stand in front of your people with your word. Uh, you have uh, today uh, in front of this assembled group an imperfect man uh, trying to work uh, with a perfect word uh, and yet standing in front of imperfect people as well. Uh, I will not teach and preach this perfectly. And we pray, Father, for the work of your spirit uh, to take your word and to teach us all. Um, I pray, Father, that you would do that either through uh, the words that I say this morning or in spite of them. And I pray that you would uh, keep me uh, from teaching error, that you would keep me from leading people astray. It is a sobering deal. And I pray, Father, uh, for the work of your Spirit during this time this morning and that you would bless this time, that you would bless uh, our efforts as I attempt to preach uh, and as people listen to your word. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.
All right. Well, we're going to start verse five. Uh, Paul says uh, to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So apparently Paul uh, and Titus, they've done some missionary work on this island of Crete. Uh, you can look at a, a map today in the Mediterranean Ocean. There's still this uh, nation, this island of Crete there. Uh, they did some missionary work. Um, it was Paul's usual practice, if you look in Acts, uh, to uh, at least come back and put leaders in place to appoint elders uh, in every church that he went to. And something apparently had happened in this instance. He's not able to finish that task, but he leaves Titus here, and he charges him with the task of putting what remains into order. And part of that is to appoint elders Okay, these are probably younger churches. Uh, you've probably got newer believers, but they've probably been around long enough uh, to have been taught what sound doctrine is. Okay, because there's an expectation uh, that Titus knows what this is, and that there are people there who know what this is that he can appoint elders from. So there's at least enough time has elapsed that there's uh, people there who understand what sound doctrine is, and there has also been time enough for false teachers to have uh, come in. This is one of the reasons. Uh, that Paul wants Titus to put elders in place is because you, if you look in verse 10, and we're going to look at some more of this next week, you've got guys that have come in, they're false teachers and are leading people astray. And you need something in place, not only to help people to grow, but to uh, combat against false teaching. And this is part of the plan, is to get elders in place. So probably some, some uh, younger churches, newer believers. Um, and so it's time uh, to get some formal leadership in place. And so we look at that, he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, the first thing we're going to look at is that an elder uh, is appointed. Okay, he's not, uh, it's not a popular election. Titus is in charge of appointing those elders. It's an example for us that we're a current leadership in the church. How do you get new elders? You get elders who are in place who look out amongst the congregation, and they look for men whom the Holy Spirit is raising up. Okay, people who are already, men who are already beginning uh, to lead, to teach. That's part of the way that we that, that this happens. So current leadership, current elders look uh, out and see who is already kind of meeting these requirements, whose character lines up with these qualities that we're going to look at, who is already leading, who's already teaching, who's already taking some responsibility for shepherding the body. Okay. So you look at that, um, but you also have, uh, the congregation also has a place in that. There are places in in the New Testament, uh, in Acts chapter 6, where the apostles directed the church in Jerusalem to pick out from among themselves men for ministry. Uh, In Matthew 18, the church as a whole is involved in church discipline. Uh, In Acts chapter 1, when they were looking for a candidate looking for men to take Judas's place. He had gone off, he had hanged himself. They were looking to, to put someone in that place. Um, and the whole church put forward two candidates. Okay, So you've got current leadership, you've got elders who are in place, the authority that's in place, working with the congregation to identify people whom the Holy Spirit is already raising up uh, to put forward uh, as elders. All right, who is the Holy Spirit selected? Who is an example of the character qualities that we're going to look at? Who wants to be an elder? You know, that's another thing. Uh, there's a parallel passage to this, 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is writing to Timothy at the church in Ephesus, and there's another list uh, of qualities, of requirements that a man needs to meet to be able to serve uh, as an elder in a church. 
Um, and in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that he desires a noble task. So it's not just that, uh, that there's, he's meeting these qualities, but does he want to do this? Does he aspire to that? Does he desire to take some leadership, to take responsibility for shepherding the body? So who's already doing that, even if they don't have that formal ti- that title? So the, the Holy Spirit, really, when you boil it down, he is the one who is responsible for raising up leadership within a church. The congregation has a part in that. The current leadership has a part in that. But what they are doing is trying to recognize who uh, God's Spirit is raising up and to affirm that choice uh, and to publicly recognize him uh, as an elder in a local body. Okay? So they're appointed. It's not really an election. We're not taking a vote. Um, the way we do that here uh, is like I described. The elders will put forward a candidate. Uh, the church has an opportunity to question that candidate. What does he believe? You know, does he hold a sound doctrine? Um, what's his character like? What's his reputation like inside this uh, church? And what's it like out there? You know, is he is he is he one way here? And then told something totally different out here because that will discredit him. All right, and so you, the congregation has a chance, uh, a period of time, uh, to voice any concerns, to ask questions, uh, and then at some point, uh, we're looking for confirmation. The congregation has a uh, uh, a point in time where they can affirm, uh, confirm the choice uh, that the elders have made. Okay, so you've got you've got those two uh, groups, this whole body working together. Um, it's not an election. It's not a vote. You're not looking at people uh, trying to go, well, he's been successful out there. So that obviously means he'll be successful in here. It doesn't work that way all the time. Okay? It's not a popularity contest. You're not looking for who's the most extroverted personalities. All right? Who meets the qualities that we're going to look at? Who wants to take responsibility for shepherding this body? Um, and you confirm that. Okay? You have a popularity contest over time. That's called a church split. And that's what happens when you start taking votes and having popularity contests. Look at what the Holy Spirit is doing. You try to work as a body to confirm that. Elders were to be appointed, and they were to be appointed in every town. All right, we get the idea that there is a, a, a multiple uh, elders. You know, This verse by itself doesn't necessarily require that you have more than an elder in each town. But if you look at the consistent pattern of the New Testament... In each church, you have a, what's called a plurality of elders. You have a, multi, you have a team uh, of men leading that, that local body. Okay? Um, a plurality of elders, there, there are a lot of benefits that go along with that. For one, it keeps a lot of, uh, or too much authority, too much power from being invested in just one person. If you've heard the old uh, saying uh, that uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, you get too much power, too much authority invested in one person, uh, you can run into problems. So you share that responsibility. You share that leadership. It's kind of a check against this, the sinful tendencies that we all have. Okay? So you share that. Uh, what it also guards against is that you don't take on, over time, the personality of the main person who's in charge. All right? And a church can do that over time. You can, uh, if you've only ever got one guy... Uh, who's in charge of everything, one guy who's doing all the preaching and teaching, you can begin to take on, as a church, the personality of that guy. Now, that has, a, that has strength to it because you, you can take on his strengths, 
But he also has weaknesses. He has blind spots. Uh, not everybody is going to be perfect in the way they understand and interpret Scripture. And so by having a team of people, you help guard against some of this. By having a team of people that can help in teaching, you guard against taking on the theological blind spots, the imperfection, the weaknesses of just one person. Okay, So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of benefits to having a plurality of elders. Now sometimes, like in a body our size, that's not going to be a great big body of elders. Right? In other churches, that could be a, a ton of men. Right? But the idea is that you don't want that invested in just one single person because right? you run into problems. Um, it's not a, if you, ever, if you ever heard of an Episcopalian form of government, um, if that's a new word for you, sometimes, as we'll look through here, you've got the word overseer. Some translations, some versions that you may have, say, uh, we'll use the word bishop. Okay? Bishop comes from uh, a Greek word, uh, episkopos. It's two words, epi, which means over, and skopos means to watch. So it literally means to watch over or to oversee. All right? So some versions will say overseer, some versions say bishop. An Episcopalian form of government, you have a church, a congregation, and then over leading that congregation, you have what's called a rector or a vicar uh, or a priest over this local congregation or this local parish. All right? And then as you work your way up, you have a group of these parishes, which is known as a diocese. And you've, you have a bishop that is over this area of churches. He oversees or watches over this group of churches. And if you keep going up the ladder, you've got several dioceses that come under an archbishop. All right? And if you're Catholic and you keep working your way up higher, you work through uh, cardinals and uh, other prelates, other levels, until you finally you get all the way up to Rome and you get to the Pope. All right? Um, and it's not lost on me that I'm saying we don't hold to an Episcopalian form of government as I'm standing in a gym on a, an Episcopalian school campus, okay? I'm thankful that they let us worship here. But as we look at the Scripture, this church looks at that and says, no, it's a plurality of elders. You have two offices, elders and deacons. Um, and we are a, governed by a plurality of elders. We're not accountable, which could be good or bad, you know, to, a, to an archbishop somewhere. Um, we think that's the pattern that the New Testament shows, uh, that, it, that it is a church, a local church, in charge of governing itself uh, as it listens to the Scriptures and how God is leading. Okay? That doesn't mean you don't seek out advice from other churches. You can do that. That's a good thing. Um, but we're not a, an, a, what's known as an Episcopalian form of church government. We're, we're an autonomous uh, group underneath, of course, the leading of, of, uh, of God, leading of the Holy Spirit. So... Um, Appoint elders, appoint multiple elders, appoint them in every town. Um, uh, he says to uh, appoint it as I directed you. And then in verse 6, If anybody is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the first thing in that little verse is above reproach. And that's kind of this overarching characteristic that we're working here with. Above reproach or blameless. Um, it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean someone who's perfect, because then no one is qualified. We wouldn't have even have a, we, we we would not have even had apostles, uh, because they wouldn't have, they weren't imperfect guys. So it's not sinless. But what it means is that he is he is free from any kind of a charge against his moral character. All right, that is legitimate. Now anyone in leadership is going to face criticism. Anyone in leadership is going to face accusations from time to time. 
the, the, what we're talking about here is, is he have some moral failing, especially in, what, in the characteristics that we're going to look at in the rest of this passage, that disqualifies him. It's not that, well, I don't like his style of preaching. I don't like the songs that he picks out. I don't, he didn't come to visit me when I was sick. He's not very friendly. Those may be legitimate uh, claims. An elder needs to continue to look at himself, uh, look at how he can, needs to continue to grow. But what we're talking about here uh, is a moral charge. Okay, If he has failed morally, if he, if he has disqualified himself according to these qualities that we'll look at. Um, so, above reproach, blameless. And then we've got this phrase that is a tough one to deal with. It says, the husband of one wife. And what does that mean? Uh, it literally uh, is, the phrase is literally a one-woman man. Okay, and I wish Paul would have been clearer um, because I wrestle with this and I don't know exactly how to handle it. I'm going to walk you through the different ways that people have handled this. Um, and I'll tell you which way I lean. And I'll give you what I think is the official uh, position that this church would take on this. Jared can correct me when he comes back in a couple of weeks if I speak out of turn. Um, but one of the ways that that has been interpreted is that it's a prohibition against polygamy. If you're a one-woman a one man, that means you can't have multiple wives, or especially in this Greco-Roman culture that this is given in, mistresses were, were commonplace. Concubines were commonplace. And, and they're, they're saying that this is a prohibition against that. You're married to one woman. You don't have all this stuff going on on the side over here, okay? You are faithful to this woman. So it's a prohibition against polygamy. A lot of the early church uh, held that. Um, John Calvin held that. If you've got a set of Matthew Henry's commentaries, that's the way he uh, he goes. Wayne Grudem, he's a a modern-day theologian. Um, He leans that way. That's largely the way that that, uh, he goes in his theology. Um, again, a lot of the early church held that, uh, so that has some strength there. A second way to look at that is it, it says a husband of one wife, that means that an elder has to be married. Right? You can't have single guys serving as elders. You have to have married men serving as elders. Now, that seems to me uh, that it would have disqualified Paul himself. Right? He's writing this to Timothy. He's a single man. Um, in fact, he extols the virtues of remaining single and for what the benefits that it gives you for doing ministry. All right? If you're married, you got concerns that go along with marriage. All right? If you're single, you don't have those concerns. And that's a benefit in terms of doing ministry. So if only married men uh, can, serve, can serve as an elder, that seems to go against uh, what Paul has taught about the virtues or the benefits uh, of a single life. And... If you just want to be consistent, if an, over, if an overseer must be married, um, then we're going to rule out guys that only have one child. Because the verse clearly says uh, that children. All right? So if he has to be married, if you're going to follow the logic through that verse, uh, then if you only have one child, you've got to wait until you have multiple children before you can serve. Okay? So I don't think that that's the way uh, that that should be interpreted. Um, another way is, is looking at, at that you cannot be remarried. All right? And this is where it starts to get a little hairy. Uh, some uh, churches will look at that and say uh, that that's remarriage, period. Whether your first spouse died uh, or whether you were divorced and remarried. That if, you're, uh, if your spouse died, um, if you want to serve as an elder, you have to remain 
single. You cannot, because it's a husband of one wife. Okay? Um, the early church did hold the idea that if your spouse uh, passed away, that it was virtuous for you to remain single. All right? that, was, that was highly valued. Um, the, uh, but again, seems to me that that would, would seem to contradict Paul's teaching in Romans and in 1 Corinthians uh, that a husband or wife is only bound to their spouse as long as they're alive. Okay, If your spouse dies, then they're free to remarry as long as they remarry in the Lord, as long as they remarry a believing spouse. Okay, So I don't, I don't, I don't hold to that one either. Um, there is also the idea that you cannot, if you have been divorced, um, that that disqualifies you because you are no longer above reproach in serving as an elder. Some churches will hold to that as well. This idea of divorce and remarriage means that you're no longer just a one-woman man. Um, and then a fourth way uh, is to look at that as, as having the general idea that you are faithful to your wife. Okay, You're faithful to your marriage, that your marriage conforms uh, to the standards of that church, and that if you're remarried, that your remarriage is biblically legitimate. Okay, um, So a lot of that comes down to what does a church believe and teach regarding divorce and remarriage. And I am not going to give a full-blown deal this morning. We don't have time for it, and I'm not going to do it, on what Scripture teaches regarding uh, divorce and remarriage. But some churches uh, we're going to, are going to take the tack that, that there's not really any biblical, uh, biblically legitimate grounds uh, for divorce or remarriage. And so in those churches, an elder, one marriage or a single guy, and that's it. Okay. Uh, other churches are going to say, we think that there might be biblically legitimate grounds for divorce, um, but we don't see remarriage as being a legitimate option. If you divorce, that's it. Okay. Some churches will take that. They look at, at, at uh, what certain passages teach about remarriage being adultery, and they say, you can't, we can't have that. All right. Other churches will say, yes, there are legitimate biblical grounds for divorce as a last resort. And when I'm not talking about what's prevalent today about that, that the main thing in my life is that I'm happy and that you as a spouse are here to make me happy and if you can't do it, I'm out. That is rampant. And we divorce for any and every reason. Uh, that is not what, what these churches would look at as being legitimate. They would say, they think that the Scripture teaches that in certain uh, instances of adultery, that that's legitimate grounds for suing out a divorce, and they would say that Scripture teaches uh, that you're free to remarry in that instance. Okay, so where do we go with all that? You know, you got to make a decision on, on, on what do you do with that. Um, and I'm going to harp on church history a little bit again. You know, we got through going through that whole deal with this. This is one of the reasons I think it's important to know what the beliefs and practices were of the people that have come before you, because myself. In reading scripture, I tend to take a more conservative uh, view on this. Okay, I'm in the minority in what I hold to regarding divorce and remarriage. But I look at the history of the church, and I recognize that I, I'm I'm differing from the, what the vast majority of the church has held through history. That gives me pause. That makes me think. Okay, if my if my heroes, some of my heroes, the Puritans would say, yeah, there's legitimate grounds uh, for a divorce and remarriage. 
uh, if they will hold to that and I'm going, you know, I'm not so sure, I'll look at that and go, eh, maybe this doesn't need to be, this does not need to be a hill that I'm willing to die on. Now, I'm willing uh, to go to the mat over the fact that we need strong biblical marriages. Uh, and that if you do believe that divorce is biblically permissible, that that is a very last resort. And I've seen uh, my own friends, uh, friends that, that Karen and I have, and their marriage where adultery took place. And, it, and in the church we were in, that would have been grounds uh, for the spouse who has sinned against to, to pursue a divorce. Um, that would have been fine. Uh, it was biblically legitimate. But they chose to say, no, we're going to work through that. Uh, and they did. It took a lot, of, a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of gut-wrenching evaluation of themselves, and they worked through that. And so I'll go to the mat for having marriages that will work through that. I'm not going to just say, you can go do whatever you want. Okay? Now, this church probably takes more of the position that there are legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage. I know that I'm a little more conservative than that, um, but that's where we, that's where we are uh, as a church. If you want kind of want an official position, that's where we would be. Okay? So we would probably say you would look at a guy who's an elder candidate, you look at his past, if there's divorce and remarriage, then you're taking a long look at what happened. What were the circumstances surrounding that? Is that biblically legitimate? Okay, so that's that's kind of where we would be in this body. Um, that's a hard passage to deal with. A hard three words in the Greek, and it's a tough deal to wrestle with. Okay, and it's hard to stand before uh, a group of people that are imperfect. And I know the history uh, of some marriages in this in this body, and it's a hard thing to be able to stand and say, "This is what I think Scripture says." But before God, uh, and because of my conscience, you know, I feel like all of those, uh, all that needs to be on the table. You know, I don't need to be keeping anything back uh, because I'm afraid, even if it's hard. All right. So if you got any questions about that, you can definitely come talk to me afterwards. Um, men that I respect uh, will hold my position and yet find no problem at all working in a church. Uh, that is more liberal in their interpretation of that. Okay, There's legitimate room for disagreement in this area. There's no legitimate room for disagreeing over what the gospel is. There can be some legitimate room for disagreeing over this. Okay, And I've spent a lot of time over three words. And I don't have much time to go through the rest of this passage, so we're going to blow through it. Um, but that's kind of where I would come uh, in my understanding of that, kind of where we are, as a, I think, as a church in our understanding of that. Okay, um, Children... Uh, who are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Another one right there, most Bible translations, we're going to say children who are believers. I immediately go, how can a dad produce salvation in his children? I can't produce salvation in anybody. Okay, I can lead my children. Um, most of the translations will say children who are believers in this, in this spot. Uh, and older commentators will say that. If you look at newer commentators... They'll say that can be translated either way. And I'm not a Greek expert, so I'm, I'm relying on people that are experts uh, in Greek. And they'll say that, that can be legitimately translated either way. Okay? So children who are believers, they would say, uh, how can a man shepherd other believers if his own children aren't believers? How can he lead uh, other people to faith if he can't win his own family? 
Uh, the other side would say, how can a man control his own children's salvation? And uh, if you compare this with the passage in 1 Timothy 3, there's not a requirement in that passage that his children are believers. There is a requirement uh, that he would manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so I tend to lean towards the side that he's not saying that, you're, that your children have to be believers. What he is saying, though, that you have to be effective in managing your family. You can raise children that are faithful to your authority, submissive to your, to your authority. They're not, uh, what he's saying, uh, open to accusations of debauchery and insubordination. They're not wild children. Okay? They're not, they don't look like the prodigal who's taken all the money and, and run off and squandered it. You can raise children that are submissive to your, your authority and faithful to your authority. And I think that's the picture that he's getting at right here. Because the question is, if you can't do it in the home, then why should we expect that you're going to do it in the church? If you cannot effectively pastor your own family, we're not going to give you the reins of a larger body. If you can't do it with your own, why aren't you going to do it with anybody else? Okay? And that's the question, that's the, that's the issue there that Paul gets at. Uh, and that means that the home is largely a proving ground uh, for your skill, for your knowledge, for your, your character. Um, how is, you look at a guy, and you, you're looking at how he shows maturity and, and wisdom in shepherding his own family. How does he do in feeding his family on the Scriptures? How does he do in guiding them through trials? How does he do in resolving conflicts that come up within his own family? Um, how does he do in presenting the gospel to them and in teaching them? How does he model grace to them? How does he model forgiveness to them? How does he cor- correct and bring them back around when they, when they are straying? Okay? That's a proving ground. is in a home. Um, so if he doesn't do it at home, how in the world is he going to do that in the church? Okay? Um, verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So we see that phrase again, above reproach. We also see two new words, overseer and steward. We talked a little bit about overseer earlier. Um, again, this church, we, we look at it and we say there's two offices, elder and deacon. Sometimes you hear the term pastor. We'll use the term pastor. We'll use the term overseer. We'll use the term elder. Those are synonymous. Those are interchangeable. Okay, You don't have pastor and then elders, and then deacons. You have a group of men. If you want to call them all pastors, that's great. If you want to call them all elders, that's great. All right, But they are the same. There's not one that has more authority over the church than another. You may have a guy within that group who's more gifted in preaching and teaching and does more of that than the others. You may have a guy within that group who's just simply wiser who's been around longer, who has a little more maturity, who has a little more natural leadership ability. So you've got, uh, within your group of elders, you've got kind of what's called a first among equals. Okay, But you don't have an office of pastor, an office of elder, an office of deacon. It's elders and deacons, or pastors and deacons, or overseers and deacons. Okay, Get the idea? Those are synonymous. Um, you can look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Paul sent uh, to Ephesus... And he called the elders of the church to him. And when, then later on in the passage, when, he's, when he has them there, he's talking to these elders. And he, in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for or to shepherd the church of God. Okay, So they're the same guys. It's used interchangeably. Elder, 
Maybe you could say it has more uh, to do with designating his office. Overseer has more to do with describing his function. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is what he does. Okay? Um, steward. Overseer as God's steward. A steward is someone who's a manager, is someone who is entrusted with, with managing God's household. And again, that passage that we looked that I talked about in Acts 20, verse 28, says that the church belongs to God. In 1 Timothy 3, there's a couple of places where it talks about the church being the household of God. All right? So a steward, an overseer is a steward, an elder is a steward whom God has left in charge for managing his household. He's not doing that for himself. He's God's steward. He is accountable to God. He is serving his master, God. All right? You're not doing this for yourself. You're serving the people of God. You're accountable to God. He is a steward, a manager. He's not a CEO. All right? He's a shepherd. So, we see a couple of words that, that give us a little bit of the function of elders. They oversee, they care, uh, they're left in charge. 1 Timothy 5 says that those, those elders who rule well, especially in preaching and teaching, let them be worthy of double honor. You see them ruling. So they, uh, they, they rule, they oversee, um, they guard the flock by teaching, uh, by rebuking, as we'll look at at the end of this passage. Again, we see uh, the requirement that they are above reproach. And then he spells out more in verses 8 uh, and 9 what above reproach looks like, especially verse 8. He says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. In other words, you're not, you don't get these guys in here who are self-willed, who are prideful, who are stubborn, who are out for themselves. You don't get someone uh, in place as an elder who has a hair trigger in terms of his anger, who's going to flare up. Uh, you know, who's it's not you know ready aim and fire. He's just ready and fire as soon as something comes up. All right, he's quick to anger. You don't have that. You don't have a guy uh, who's a drunkard. You got a drunk shepherd. You got sheep that are all over the place. Okay, this is not necessarily a prohibition. Uh, against an elder uh, using alcohol. Okay, what he it, when you look at combine this with what it says uh, down below with uh, being disciplined and self control, but that he is moderate in those things that are lawful to enjoy. Okay, he is in control of that. It's not in control of him. He's not known as someone who's given to it all the time, who loves it. All right, use it, enjoy it. But he does it in moderation where he is controlled and disciplined in that. Okay? But he's not a drunkard. And you've got to remember the kind of uh, society that Crete was. Probably not a lot different from our own society. Uh, when the immorality uh, that was in place. He's not violent. He's not a bully. He's not wanting to fight. You know, he's not balling up his fist and ready to go at it at the drop of a hat over every, each and every little thing. He's not greedy for gain. First Timothy 3 will say he's not a lover of money. You don't get a materialistic guy in there. You don't get a guy in there who's looking to use his position or his ministry as a means for lining his own pocket. You want a good example of what those guys look like? Turn on the TV. All right? It's full of it. These guys are servants. They are shepherds. This is not a money-making position. You can, make a, you can earn a living by preaching the gospel. That's clear. Scripture is clear on guys that... Uh, that will preach the gospel, they can be supported materially by the people that they uh, 
preach to. Uh, and that elders uh, can be paid by those people that they are overseeing and shepherding. Okay? But this is not a means for getting rich. This is not a means for lining your pockets. And you've got to get someone in there who's not a lover of money, who's not greedy for gain. That's what they're not supposed to be. What they are supposed to be is hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. They are upright. They are holy. They are disciplined. All right, hospitable. That's a highly valued attribute, especially in that culture, uh, in that first century, especially the first century, first few centuries where you got persecution, people uh, losing their homes. You got to have men who are willing to open their homes to bring people in, willing uh, men willing to share what they have uh, with those who need it. You had to have people that would be willing to open their homes for worship. They didn't have church gyms or buildings together in. They needed a place to worship. They worshiped in homes. You had to have people that were willing to do that, to open that up. Um, someone who loves what is good, uh, upright, that he is just, he is righteous, he is upright in his conduct, uh, he is holy. You look at his life and it's characterized by godliness. It's characterized by someone who is devoted to God, uh, by someone who is holy. Uh, you look at the purity of his life. Okay, Someone who is disciplined, that and self-control kind of go together. You've got someone who is in control of his desires. He's in control of his passions. He's in control of his appetites. All right, The things that he wants, whether that's food or stuff, that's not controlling him. He is in control of that. Uh, he's in control of his strength. The, again, those things that are lawful for him to enjoy, he can do that in moderation. He's in control. Those things that are unlawful, that are harmful, he controls himself and refrains from those things. Okay, So you get a picture of the, of the character that this guy needs to have about what above reproach looks like. This last characteristic, though, in verse 9, you know, all, those, all those characteristics that we just looked at, we should all aspire to that. Okay? Those are Christ-like. And that's what we as a body, all of us as individuals, should aspire to. You look at men who are models of that and who aspire to helping shepherd the body, and you get them in as elders. All right, verse 9 this is the, the last characteristic. It's kind of specific to ministry. He says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The trustworthy word, you boil that down, that's the Scriptures. All right? At this point in time, you know, they didn't have what we have bound together. You know, they had letters of apostles that were beginning to circulate make their way around to different churches, there was a recognized body uh, that was already in place of what was right to believe, what was sound doctrine. And he's saying that you need to, the, uh, an elder must hold fast, he must hold firm to this, to the word, the truth, the faith. Jude, uh, Jude 3, Jude says we need to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down. That's what... Uh, is in this book, the scriptures. You've got to have an elder. Uh, an elder has to be someone who holds fast to that, who is immovable from the word. Um, so he's got he's to hold fast to that. Two reasons for why he has to hold fast to that. He's got to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and he's got to be able to rebuke those who contradict. So he's got to be able to teach, to give instruction. He has to encourage and exhort, uh, admonish, persuade people of the truth of this. Persuade people to conform their lives to this. 
to provide instruction and teaching in this, okay? And to rebuke. That he has to be able to refute those uh, false teachings. He has to re- refute false teachers. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture, all, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so an elder has to be able to take sound doctrine, this word, and be able to refute and reprove and correct. And he's doing that with an eye to bringing people around to the truth, to bringing people around to conformance with this, bringing people around to obedience and repentance. You know, and if you don't do that, he's got to be able, uh, as an elder, as a body of elders, and ultimately as a church, uh, to rebuke people that will not repent from teaching things that are false. Okay? Uh, John Calvin said a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The Scripture supplies him with the means for doing both, and he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. Um, Now, we look at all that. That is a high calling to serve as a shepherd over people's souls. Okay? That's a sobering deal. If you're a dad, uh, God has given you a little church. You may never serve as as a pastor, as an elder, in an official way in a church, but if you're a dad, he's given you a little church. All right? He has made you the pastor over this little church, and you've got a little congregation. And the same qualities that we look at uh, for these guys and what they're able to do apply to you as a dad and me as a dad. I've got to be able to take the Scriptures and teach my family, teach my children. I've got to have a character that models for my family uh, godliness. That's a high calling for a dad. That's a high calling for an elder over a church. And that's one of the reasons that we as a body need to pray a lot for the men that lead this church. There are all sorts uh, of dis- things that discourage you in leadership. Little nitpicky things that people bring up that over time just discourage you. Come on, why, why God have you called me to do this? Pray for Jared. Pray for Mike. Pray for the other men uh, that lead in this church. We desperately need people to pray because of of how high a calling this is. Um, Another thing you'll know, most of this is on their character. Yes, you've got to know the Scriptures. Yes, you have to be able to teach that. But you can be the most skilled man in the world. If you have no character, you disqualify yourself. And if we let you loose doing stuff and you have no character, you will ruin people. You will ruin a church with, with immoral character, with ungodly character. All right? You don't have to be brilliant to serve as a, as a pastor or an elder. You do have to be godly. All right? So you need to know some of this as a congregation because, again, as we said, you have a part in helping to identify people that can serve as elders. You have a, a role, especially in this church, you know, in the process of how we put men in place to serve as elders. So you need to know this. You know, not just for yourself and your own characters, your own character, you're trying to conform to this, uh, but you have an idea of what this needs to look like uh, for the men who are leading over our church. Okay? So all of us should aspire to that. All of us should try to cultivate that in our own lives. 
Dads, if you've got a little church, then you're a little elder and a little pastor in your own little church. And a lot of this applies to you as well in terms of how you serve in your home. All right. Well, there's a lot in there. I've taken a little more time than what I intended to. Uh, there's some hard stuff to wrestle with that. Um, but again, if you're going to preach and teach, you can't shrink back uh, from things that, that are in Scripture uh, that are tough to deal with, especially in light of a culture that has redefined character, redefined marriage, uh, redefined any type of purity and holiness. Uh, if you're going to do this either in a church or as a dad, you're going to find yourselves butting up against a culture that is hostile to these ideas. And so you've got to be willing to take the hits, all right, as a leader and as a dad. Uh, for your family, for your church, you've got to be willing to take some hits. All right? So I would encourage all of us uh, to not, not look at this passage and, and be discouraged of, of asking, how can I ever live up to this? Nobody will live up to this perfectly. But you daily meet with the Lord. You daily look at His Word. You daily meet with Him in prayer. Uh, And over time, He grows you. He produces character in your life. He shapes you. Okay? So don't be discouraged. If you look at that and you think of your past and think, man, He could never redeem that. He is in the business of redeeming pasts. He is in the business uh, of healing lives. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged uh, that there is a God who will shape you, change you, redeem you, uh, who loves you, who has identified himself with your welfare, and who will complete the work that he has begun in you. Okay? So let me pray. Father, that is a a high, high calling, as we talked about. And again, I I pray uh, that if there is anything um, that I have said this morning uh, that is wrong, that you would draw a veil over that. Cause us to forget it. Correct me. Uh, What I want most for this morning uh, is that we would understand truth. And not only that we would understand that, but that we would live it people whose lives are shaped by your words, shaped by Christ, shaped into godliness. I pray for men to be raised up in this body who will lead well. I pray for men in marriages and in homes who will lead well. I pray for men who are not married, who still, with the responsibility that you've given them in whatever sphere of life you've placed them, who would lead well. I pray for women, for wives, for mothers, uh, who would come alongside and help them, encourage them, pray for them, exhort them to the things of Scripture, that they would lead well. I pray that you would do this in our body for your glory and for yours alone. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.